Our text for this Lord's Day comes from uh, Matthew chapter 11 as we continue our study in this gospel. Hear now God's holy word. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you for your blessing on the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word today. Fill us with your spirit that we might understand these things rightly, that we might make proper application of them. Uh, loosen my tongue, deliver me from error, uh, remove anything that's unhelpful, and establish that which is true. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When my kids were small, at the very first opportunity, I bought them a leather mitt. I got a bat and put it in their hands and got them onto a baseball or a softball team, not because I thought this is how we're gonna pay for college, not because I was trying to live vicariously through them, but because it's a beautiful game with some unique qualities and lessons. One feature is that you can't hide on a baseball field. There are some sports where you can kind of run around and look busy and stay away from the ball and stay out of the spotlight, but not, not in baseball. You can't avoid attention. In baseball, everyone has their at bat. Everyone has their moment in the spotlight. The pitcher's mound is a lonely place. It's just you and it's up to you to do your job. The other major uh, quality and major life lesson in baseball is learning how to fail. There is more failure in baseball than there is success. The best hitters in history only uh, reach base on a base hit um, uh, about a third of, of their at-bats. Two-thirds of their at-bats end in failure. The best teams in baseball lose about a third of their games during any season. The, the team with the best record this year lost over 50 games this season. 50 times, 50 days, they went home losers. Their fans went home with a loss. So if you're going to be successful, you have to learn how to lose and lose a lot and lose without falling apart. You have to learn how to fail because you can do everything you're supposed to do, do everything right and still fail in that game, just like in real life. I, I know this may be hard for perfectionists to hear. It may be hard for overachievers to hear, but it is possible to do everything you are supposed to do in life and still fail. And by fail, I mean not succeed according to any basic worldly metric of success. In life, you can do everything right. You can make wise decisions. You can get good advice and not get the outcome you plan for not get the outcome you desire. And in fact, you may get a negative outcome. Now there's a false gospel known as the prosperity gospel that teaches the opposite 
of this. That if you do certain works, it's possible to pull down God's blessing from heaven. By your deeds, you can obligate God to give you certain good things. Uh, but that's a false gospel. Uh, God is not beholden to you to make you rich or famous or successful according to earthly definitions. That, that sort of um, uh, system is it's built on a lie. That's not true. And it's never supported by the life of anybody in the Bible. In fact, we get examples over and over and over of someone who does everything according to plan, does everything right, and still ends up in disaster by worldly metrics. Joseph did not deserve to get sold into slavery. He did not deserve, Joseph did not deserve to go to prison in Egypt. Joseph did everything he was supposed to do. He was faithful. He fled from temptation and it landed him in prison. The Bible says Job was blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. And Job lost everything. The Apostle Paul was shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, constantly opposed because he was faithful. None of these men that I just mentioned were sinless. They were, however, obedient. They were faithful. Um, and, and even the only sinless man ended up on a cross. No one was ever more pleasing to the Father than Jesus. Where did Jesus go wrong to end up on a cross? Where did Jesus fail? Where did he mess up to end up on a cross? Well, he didn't. And yet that was still the outcome before the resurrection. Now you may ask, well, what's, what's the point of obeying God? What's the point of seeking to please him to do anything right if it's still going to land me in trouble? If, if it's like it doesn't count, well, the point of obeying God is that there is a judgment beyond this life where everything is going to be put right, where the last will be first and the first will be last, where everything has eternal weight and eternal glory and everything gets sorted out at the judgment. In the meantime, in this life, God is working his purposes out and he's glorified not only through the worldly successes of his people, and he is glorified through our successes, but he's also glorified through the hardship of his people. He's also glorified through the suffering of his people. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Uh, and if the second person of the Trinity, if the Son of God grew through suffering, how do I get a pass? Why, why should I not also uh, have hardship? On top of all of this, in addition to this, God does not require us to ever manage results. God does not give us control over outcomes. God gives the increase. Our job is to be faithful with all that he has given us and to trust him with Results. Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. In, in, in every place, we have it uh, affirmed to us that the outcomes are in the hand of of God. Our job is to be faithful with what he's given us and leave the results to him. And among the many examples of this truth in the Bible is John the Baptist. John did everything he was called to do. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. The life of John the Baptist pleased God. 
Jesus points to him as an example of faithfulness. And in Matthew chapter 11, we find that John is in prison. What a disaster. What, how, how did we get this outcome from a man who is as faithful as John? How did this happen? We met John earlier in Matthew's gospel, and when we saw him first, we saw this fearless, fiery, bold preacher confronting hypocrisy, confronting sin, rebuking sin. That was his calling, and John was so bold as to rebuke Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. He was this puppet king that was set up by Rome, and uh, Herod Antipas divorced his wife and took his brother's wife, Herodias, and when uh, news of this broke out, John the Baptist wasn't subtle. He wasn't nuanced in his preaching against Herod. He didn't write an anonymous letter. He didn't vague tweet about uh, what um, Herod was doing. He didn't make excuses for Herod. You know, we all sin, and Herod is no worse sinner than any of us, so we just need to love on Herod. We just need to love him back into the fold. John didn't say that. John went into public and he called Herod an adulterer. He said, Herod, what you're doing is vile. It's wicked. It's sinful. It stinks to high heaven. And Herod didn't take that too well. And so he threw John in a dungeon and kept him there until later we find out uh, Herod's adulterous lover ends up um, conspiring to have him killed, plotted to have John killed. And uh, Herod, of course, was complicit in that. In Matthew chapter 11, John is still in prison. He's still alive here. And he's still able to have some communication with those he had taught, the men known as John's disciples. The disciples of John show up in some interesting places in the Bible. And here's one place where the men who were discipled by John show up uh, to investigate Jesus. John sends them with a question. And the question from John is this, are you the coming one or do we look for another? The coming one is a title with a long history. We just sang in the Sanctus, and we sing this every Lord's Day. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a title. He who comes in the name of the Lord is someone that Israel was looking for. In Psalm 40 and Psalm 118, they talk about Messiah as the coming one, the one coming in the name of the Lord. It's a, it's a term that John himself used to talk about the Messiah. John said, I indeed baptize you with water, but one uh, mightier than I is coming. There is one coming who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's the same term that, uh, the same title for Messiah that John used in his preaching, the coming one. Now what's curious is how this question comes from John now. He says, are you that coming one or do we look for another? That's odd because of the fact that uh, John has already spoken of Jesus as the coming one. John has said about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When, when John sees Jesus, he tells his disciples, this is the one I told you was coming. When he saw the Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, John said, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Many times, John has testified that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit of God rests, who is commissioned by God to bring judgment and salvation to Israel. But now, here in prison, 
John sends his men to ask Jesus, are you really the coming one? Or are we waiting for somebody else? What is happening? Why is John asking this question? Well, John is a human. He's not omniscient. And he's, he's experiencing, I think, what any of us would go through in the same situation. He is confronted with doubts. Difficult circumstances can lead us to doubt, especially when we followed all the rules. We did the right thing. We did what we were supposed to do. And still, we get an extremely unpleasant outcome. You doubt in those circumstances. You doubt, did I really obey God? Where did I mess up? If only I had done this other thing, maybe I wouldn't have ended up in this spot. Where did I go wrong? Did, did I miss something? Did I misunderstand something? Or you start to doubt God's goodness to you. If you figure out and you say, well, there's really nothing I could have done any differently. So maybe, maybe the problem lies with God. Maybe God isn't uh, a, 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 a careful, loving, heavenly father. Maybe he's not good. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe he's abandoned me. Maybe he's just stopped answering my prayers. Maybe I'm condemned. Maybe I'm being punished for something. And you just doubt God himself. You doubt his integrity. You doubt his reality and his existence. Maybe I'm on the wrong track altogether. Where is his goodness? Where is his pleasure? Where is his presence in my life? Maybe I've wasted my life on a lie to this point by trusting in God. That sounds like something close to what John may be thinking. Have I thrown my life away on a lie? Put yourself in John's position. John is in a dungeon and it's not like he's been sentenced. There's not been a judge who says, I condemn you to three years in incarceration. And he's not counting the days until he's released. They toss him in the dungeon and throw away the key. He's not getting out of there. And while he's in there, he gets these reports about the amazing, wonderful things that Jesus is doing. Jesus is healing people. He's raised the dead. He teaches with authority. That's all great. It's all wonderful. It's all amazing. What Jesus is not doing yet is the thing that John the Baptist said that he would do. John the Baptist expected Jesus to come clean out the threshing floor to lay the ax to the root of fruitless trees and throw them in the fire. John says, this is what Jesus is going to do because Malachi said that that is what Messiah would do. Malachi is the prophet that told us that John was coming. The, Malachi is the prophet that said, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare my way before me. So Malachi is the prophet who told us John was coming. Malachi is also the prophet that told, tells us what uh, John would do and how he would set things up for Messiah. And, and so Malachi also writes that when Messiah comes, who may abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. The day is coming that will burn as an oven and the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble and the day that comes will burn them up. That's the message of Malachi which John the Baptist had internalized. John preached Malachi back to the people that this is what's gonna happen when Messiah comes. And he preached that to Herod. And now John's in prison because of that message. And now as John hears reports about what Jesus is doing, I'm sure he's thinking, okay, 
when do we get to the chopping trees down part? When do we get to the cleaning out the threshing floor part? When do we get to the baptism of fire? When does that part come? I, I mean, if that, if that was going on, I should be free by now. Why am I in a dungeon? Or do I have it all wrong? What did I miss? What did I fail to understand? John came thundering this message of imminent wrath and judgment. He expected Jesus to set things in order, but the only kind of judgment he sees is the very bad judgment of Herod against him. And Herod is having drunken parties. Herod is carrying on with his adulterous affair. The sinners are not being judged. The wicked are not being judged. John is being judged. This is all very out of step with what John expected. So Matthew gives us this account, and Matthew gives us this very tender but direct response of Jesus back to John the Baptist. We kind of break this quickly into three sections. The first section is uh, the question of John's disciples and Jesus' reply. And then uh, the second section is Jesus praising and commending the work of John. And then the third section, Jesus actually turns this into rebuke against Israel for rejecting both John and Jesus and for the unbelief of, of Israel. With John here, we get to see how does a godly man process doubt? It is not sinful to ask questions like John asks. It is not sinful to say, okay, what are you doing, Lord? Because it's not making sense. It's not sinful to ask God why. The psalmists do this all the time. Why do the heathen rage? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? It's not sinful to ask how long? How long will the son of men turn his glory into shame? How long will the wicked prosper? How long are you going to put up with this, O Lord? In asking this question, John is faithfully working out and reconciling his reality with his theological understanding. And what John represents here is one kind of doubt, which is a faithful doubt, a doubt that seeks answers in all the right places. And then at the end here, Jesus is going to address the doubts of Israel, who in their doubting disbelief, they didn't want to deal with their sin. They didn't want to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus. They were more than doubters. They were scoffers. So when, when Jesus receives John's question, Jesus is not offended. Jesus is not defensive. He doesn't rebuke John. Jesus demonstrates his power in the presence of John's messengers. He tells John's disciples, go, tell the things to John, the things you see and hear. They've been witnesses of some of his mighty, miraculous acts. When Luke tells this same account, uh, at that moment, Jesus unleashes a storm of miraculous uh, powers right there. Uh, that, that very hour, Luke tells us, that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. This is all a fulfillment of Isaiah. We know that what Isaiah would say about Jesus. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That was the testimony to John's disciples that, look, I'm doing what Isaiah said that I would do. I am the coming one. All the things that the prophets have said about me, John, I'm doing. And in doing this, I am sifting the wheat from the chaff. I'm doing it, but I'm doing it in a way that you didn't anticipate. I'm doing it in a way that may be confusing to you, but in a way that heals and delivers Israel and casts out demons and raises the dead to life and, and all of this sifting the nation of Israel. 
I'm doing it in a way that doesn't diminish my identity as Messiah, but a way that confirms it. So Jesus concludes his response to John with this um, subtle, tender rebuke. He says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Uh, it's a little beatitude, a little blessing that promises reward. It promises blessing to the one who accepts what Jesus is doing and trusts that Jesus knows what he's doing and the one who is patient to see everything work out, even if that means John is going to continue sitting in prison. He's going to die as a martyr. He's not going to get to participate actively anymore in the mission of Jesus. And Jesus is confirming to John, yes, all of this, every bit of it, it's all going to according to plan. You have not wasted your life. The Father is pleased with you. And we trust that John was satisfied with that answer. After John's disciples depart in the second little section here, John turns around to those who are left standing there and those who are watching, and he praises the work and the ministry of John. Three times, listen as I read this, three times Jesus asked the question, what did you expect? What did you go out to see? Verse seven, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's from Malachi. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When Herod Antipas first came to power, right before Jesus started preaching publicly, Herod Antipas chose as a symbol of his reign, he chose a reed, typical of the, of the reeds that were found all the way around the Sea of Galilee. A reed symbolized the beauty and the fertility of that area. Reeds are flexible when the wind blows, but they don't break. So Antipas thought that was a great symbol for him, and he had it stamped on all of his coins. Uh, that was a symbol of Herod's reign, this Herod. Now Jesus asked, what did you go out to see when you went out to the wilderness? Did you, did you want to see another reed shaken by the wind? Were you looking for a new king who was just like the old king, like the one we've already got? Another Herod? Is that, is that what you were looking for when you went out to hear John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and baptizing? What, what did you go out to see, he says? Did you go out to see a man in soft garments? And that may have an overtone of effeminate clothing, effeminate garments. Is that what you expected, Jesus said? Some rich, spoiled uh, uh, kid? Some, some soft prince? I tell you, you find those kinds of people in king's courts, not in the wilderness. That's what Jesus says. Um, I, I pointed out when we studied the Sermon on the Mount how often Jesus would tell a joke that if you're reading closely, you say, oh, that's funny. He, he meant that to be funny. He's making a joke. And both of these questions reveal Jesus' sense of humor again. He's being, he's being kind of silly. Nobody goes out to the wilderness to watch reeds blowing in the wind. What are you talking about, Jesus? Nobody goes out to the wilderness expecting to see a fashion show, see people wearing soft clothing out in the wilderness. Jesus is driving the point home. When you went out to the wilderness, you went out to see a prophet, right? 
You went out to see somebody like Malachi told you was coming, someone like Elijah, a hairy wild man. That's what you went to go see. Somebody who's, who's yelling and proclaiming about the coming Messiah and the coming judgment of God. You went out to see a prophet. Indeed, you saw more than a prophet. Jesus says, you saw the greatest prophet ever. So if it was a prophet you went to see and you went out to hear a prophet, why didn't you follow him? Why didn't you listen to him? Why are you embarrassed by him? Right in the middle of this, there's one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus. Verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Seems to me what Jesus is, is saying is that the kingdom of heaven has burst on the scene abruptly, violently uh, upsetting expectations, breaking up everything in its path, shaking everything, turning in, in everything inside out. And because of this, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and is presently suffering violence right now in the case of John. And the ones who grab hold of the kingdom are the ones who realize this and are passionate and tenacious and bold, who know the risks even as they enter the kingdom. I want to spend more time reflecting on that, but not this morning. We'll continue in chapter 11 next time uh, we're in the book of uh, Matthew. But Jesus continues praising John, saying, there's no greater prophet than John, and yet whoever is least in my kingdom is greater than John. John belonged to the time of the promise. You're part of the fulfillment. John was in the old world, and he was the greatest in the old world, but the new world is coming. And now there's something more important than following John, and that's entry into my kingdom. And after this, Jesus contrasts the way that John was looking for answers to that generation's response to Jesus. Uh, let's just read the, the next few verses, and we'll, um, we'll, we'll consider those. Verse 16. But what... To what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom is justified by her children. That's another curious phrase, isn't it? This section of Matthew is full of these things where, uh, what are you talking about, Lord? Uh, I want to understand you, uh, but what are you saying? We have to think about these things. We have to meditate on them and internalize them and, and chew on them. What Jesus is saying, wisdom is justified by her children. He's saying that the repentance and the faithful fruit that's being shown by all manner of sinners and outcasts, their faithfulness and repentance has legitimized, has vindicated this plan of salvation that God is ushering in through Jesus. The outcast's response to the good news proved the success of God's mission through John and Jesus. But in spite of this, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they still scoff. They rejected everything they heard. They rejected everything they saw and were not satisfied. And so Jesus uses another little parable to expose them. He said, those of you who rejected John and those of you who reject me, you're like children in the marketplace playing games. You're like a group of children who can't decide what to play, who, who can't be pleased and aren't satisfied. Some friends say, hey, let's pretend to have a wedding and we'll dance and sing happy songs. But the children say, no, we don't want to dance and be happy. So the friends say, okay, then let's play funeral. 
We'll sing dad, dad, sad songs. Well, you know, we'll have a funeral for a bird or a little, a little mouse or something. Let's play funeral. We'll sing sad songs. And the other children say, no, we don't want to play that either. You can't please them no matter what you do. Why not? Because they don't want to play unless they get to make up the game and tell everybody else what to do. And that's what the Pharisees are guilty of. Jesus says this, John came to you in rough clothing, eating a rough diet. He was an austere man, and he was preaching a forceful, hard-edged message of judgment and damnation. And you Pharisees, you didn't like him. You said he had a demon. Okay, Jesus came feasting. Jesus came eating and drinking. Jesus had somewhat a more normal life, offering not judgment and damnation in his messages. That's not what he led with, but he leads with forgiveness and healing. And then they say Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard, which by the way is the charge that you bring against a rebellious son in Deuteronomy 21. When you bring a rebellious son to the elders of the city, you say he is a, a, a drunkard and a glutton and um, if he needs to be stoned, stone him. That's the charge they're leveling against Jesus. He is a rebellious son of Israel. He deserves to be stoned. See, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus either. John wasn't good enough. Jesus wasn't good enough. So what's the problem? The problem's not with the message. And it's not with the messengers. And the problem is not with their lifestyle. The problem is in the proud, unrepentant, scoffing, disbelieving attitudes of these men. Jesus didn't play by the rules. John didn't play by the rules. They're like children who are not happy no matter what the game is. They're just not going to be satisfied, whatever you try to do. And so we have two examples in this text. We have the doubt of John, and we have the scoffing of the Pharisees. We have John's faithful questions, and we have the rejection of the Pharisees. Two different ways of addressing doubt. In this case, what are the doubts? Well, the doubts are about the mission the work, the person of Jesus, but it's a template for all the doubts that you and I deal with. Doubts about the character and the revelation of God. Doubts about what he requires of us. Doubts about the future. Doubts about how things are going in our lives and the world. And just for a few minutes now, I want you to consider how John addresses his doubts. John finds himself in extremely stressful and trying circumstances. He's given his entire life to the coming and the success of Messiah's mission. And it's not going according to the script that he had in his head, which causes him to question Jesus. And in his answer, in the answer of Jesus to John, uh, Jesus does not say, faithful people never have doubts. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, well, faithful people never ask questions like this. That's not what Jesus says. The issue here is how do you go about having those questions resolved? John brings his questions to the only source of truth. And Jesus demonstrates who he is in such a way that answers John's questions. For us to answer our very complicated questions and fears and confusions, we must do the same thing John did, which is to submit our questions to God and to trust what he has revealed about Jesus and then to hold fast to it no matter what circumstances we're in. You cannot answer your doubts and your questions inside your own head. You don't have enough resources up there. You don't have the answers up there. You cannot answer your doubts and questions inside yourself. You cannot look deep inside yourself to find the answers. They aren't there either. 
The answers aren't there. You have to look outside of yourself. In fact, go to the source. You must do what John did and ask Jesus. And where do you find Jesus? Where do you find him? You find him in his word. You find him in the sacraments. You find him in his church. You don't get there by yourself. John sends his questions to Jesus and his questions are answered and John uh, is praised by Jesus for this. There's another way to deal with doubt and unbelief and that's the way that the Pharisees did. Nothing Jesus ever did and nothing Jesus ever said was good enough for them. They were always the moral superiors. They were the intellectual elite. They set themselves up as judges over what God was doing through Jesus rather than submitting themselves to Jesus. I, and we know why, right? They knew that Jesus had their number. They, they knew that Jesus could see right through them, right to the heart of their hypocrisy. How many times have you seen people justify their sinful behavior, not by repenting, but by changing their theology. You cover your, your theological, uh, you, you, rather you cover your moral failure in a theological whitewash. You change your mind. You abandon even your belief in God. Often expressions of doubt and disbelief are not an honest search for answers. And like the Pharisees were doing, they, they, they were not an honest search for answers. It was just a smokescreen. Doubts, and disbelief are a smokescreen to cover up a rebellious and sinful heart. You don't obey God's rules. You don't want to listen to his law. You want to play by your own rules. So you start to question his existence. You start to question his goodness, his salvation, his sovereignty. And, and the internet is full of teachers and full of pastors who feed this kind of doubtful questioning that never intends to be satisfied. They're always, you always see them, well, I just, I just struggle with that. Or I'm, I don't know, I don't have an answer. I'm wrestling with it. Like it's a badge of honor, you know, that they're just wrestling with whether there was a historic Adam. Or they're just kind of struggling with whether God created the world the way he said he did. Or they're wrestling with the miracles or the flood. You name it. It's this kind of, it's kind of weasley way to keep yourself from having to make any bold declaration of truth. And if you can't take God's word at face value on fundamental foundational historical events, then how are you reading God's laws? How are you reading God's definitions of man and woman and marriage and children? What rebellious attitudes are you covering up? What sins are you justifying when you say, well, I'm, I'm just not sure there was his, his, an historic Adam. This, this doubt, this intellectualizing that's a smokescreen for rebellion often. There is a way to deal with doubt and it's the way to deal with it as John did. Um, we're, we're tempted to think that Belief and disbelief are just intellectual matters. It's, it's all just philosophical head stuff. We can just, we can just iron this stuff out by um, you know, thinking real hard about it. But it's not. The kind of disbelief that won't accept God's answers is rebellion against God. The, the kind of disbelief that is dissatisfied with the God of the Bible and dissatisfied with his answers, that scoffs at the God of the Bible... That, that has this intellectual superiority over the God of the Bible, that disbelief will carry you straight to hell. The kind of doubt that says, God, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm trusting you with the outcome, that is the kind that leads you to answers. You have doubts, you have questions, that's normal. I have questions. Where do you take those questions? 
What do you do? If, if, do, do you wonder about the problem of evil, how a powerful God could let evil into the world? Well, let's enter God's word and ask him to answer our questions. Do you wonder if Jesus is the only way to life? Do you doubt that God created the world uh, or that miracles are true? Well, bring your questions. Talk to the saints. Talk to me. Study, investigate, search for answers. Don't give up. Don't listen to scoffers. Don't listen to people who put themselves in judgment over God, over his word. It isn't sinful to have questions. What is sinful and wicked is to never try to answer those questions or to ignore the answers that are right in front of you, the way that the Pharisees were doing. That's what Jesus is rebuking them for. They're, they're ignoring the answers that are right in front of them. And don't rest easy in your unbelief and just think that this justifies your sin. The only way to deal with our doubts is to deal with them as John did, to take our questions to the Lord, to be open to hear what he says, and then to hold on to that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what we find ourselves in, because bad things will happen to you. There are events in your future that will shake you to the core. You will be tempted in those moments to doubt everything, question everything, whether you stand or fall, whether your faith is strengthened or destroyed depends on how you handle those questions, how you handle those doubts and where you take them. The Lord says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it will be open. Ask, seek, knock and you'll get the answers you're looking for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us and please, please keep us by your spirit in the faith, strengthen our faith uh, by your word and by sacraments and by the fellowship of the saints. Uh, give us uh, the opportunity to encourage each other in the faith and to bring each other our questions and doubts and fears so that we can hear your answers from your word and to not rest in unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.